Stories Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. come awake in the dim room to my body tingling with panic. I can't breathe. I listen to the sigh and whoosh of the machine just behind me and wait. In a moment, the pulse ox monitor on my left big toe will detect my blood deoxygenating, and an alarm will begin to sound. And then someone will wake up. A low burning is settling in my chest. Up at the top, near my collarbones, my lungs aching for air. My heart is beginning to speed up more now. This might trigger a different alarm, but I think Jessica has its parameters set too high, so it's less likely. The pulse ox settings can't be adjusted. I'm not sure if Jessica would mess with those anyway. I don't think she really wants me dead, she just doesn't mind me scared. The pain is growing. A slow, tearing heat spreading now down towards my lower ribs. The machine behind me falters mid-whoosh, and my eyes flit frantically that way. Is it going to alert? It does. A glorious, rapid beep-beep-beep shatters the peace in the room, and in the corner on the very edge of my vision, the blankets rise suddenly in a woolen churning, like a kraken bursting from a felt ocean. A body windmills from the bed in a tangle of limbs and dashes across the room to my side. Oh, it's Mom. It's been a while now. My sats alarm is beeping, and the room is starting to darken further as she's finishing. I'm losing consciousness. As my eyelids begin to slide down, I hear a new, urgent hiss as she turns the O2 that goes through my humidifier on and plugs my vent back into my trach. Within seconds, I am vividly, sublimely awake again. I look appreciatively towards my mom's face. You need to cough, too. She asks, calmer now. I blink once again, yes, and she nods. Let's give it a minute, she says, glancing at my pulse ox. Let's get you up to 94 or so. She silences the beeping, and we wait together in the restored peace. The vent sighs and whooshes. I look at her face in the half-light. I love Mom. Mom loves me too. I can feel it. I look at the crinkles around her eyes. Her forehead with its deep brow crease. She frowns when she reads. Okay to try now? She asks after a while. Yes, I blink. She sits me up a little and pulls the cough assist machine out and turns up my O2. She powers the machine on and we wait again for my sats to come up to 100. Once they're there, she detaches my vent again and attaches the assist and we run through our routine. Five times she inflates my lungs with the bag and presses the button to suck the air back as I try to cough. Though I search for the right muscles with my brain, try to contract them, I know the machine is the one coughing. It's been years since my diaphragm could add anything to this equation. Then she disconnects and quickly suctions my trach again with the wand. It's better. 
I feel much better. Okay, she says, laying me back a little again. Let's get you back up to 98. It's quicker this time. With the secretions gone, the vent whooshes the oxygen down into my lungs without resistance. And it's only a couple of minutes before she turns the O2 off and the hiss peters out. She watches my sats a bit to ensure they're stable, and then she smiles at me and stretches. Crisis averted, she says. Then she glances at her watch. It's nearly five. Shall we just get up? No. I blink twice and roll my eyes. But she's already turning away, pulling her robe on. Suit yourself. She laughs and dims the light again as she leaves the room. It wasn't always this way. I was a pretty regular baby. I could even walk until I was nearly three. Luckily, I don't really remember, though. For the first year of my life, my parents were blissfully unaware of the gremlin in my jeans tinkering away. Then one night, I stopped breathing in my sleep, and that changed everything. Dad used to tell me the story of that night, when he was still here, of walking in to check on me, of reaching into my cot to put his hand on my little chest, and of the creeping horror of the realization. It was still. I was blue. After a month in hospital, I was diagnosed with SMARD1, and the doctors sat my parents down and basically told them to go out and choose a tiny coffin. They said she'll stop breathing, she'll stop moving, she'll die. Boom, boom, boom. Within a few years at most. But they don't know everything. Things don't always work out how doctors think they will. In fact, if you'd hung out with the kids I've hung out with in the dozens of hospitals we've met up in, you might even begin to think things mostly don't work out the way doctors think they will. My breathing did decline rapidly, and I had to be trached and ventilated when I was about 18 months old. But apart from that, I did pretty good. I was walking. They even have videos of me running, my vent trundling along behind me on its wheelie stand. When I wasn't strong enough anymore, I used a little wheeled walker, pushing my vent in front of me instead. Once I could no longer walk, I crawled for about two years and then I used a wheelchair. But I could self-propel for another year or so after that. I didn't get my fully electric chair until I was nearly 10, and even then, I had decent use of my hands for years longer. I was 14 when I lost my right ring finger. That was almost the last thing to go. That was a difficult year. That was the year my voice, already reduced to a barely intelligible croak, completely left me too. Plus, you know, hormones. Puberty doesn't care if you have SMARD1. It came to make a woman of me anyway. I have an eye gaze. It's a screen that sits on a stand in front of my chair. I look at the letters or words I want to say and it tracks my eyes and says them for me. But it's not like talking. It's so slow and laborious. And Jessica turns it off a lot. She prefers it that way. She prefers me silent. I can't fall asleep again. Sleep has always been really difficult for me anyway. And the adrenaline of my recent near suffocation is still swishing quicksilver through my veins. So I lie in the diffused light of my room and wait to see who's coming to get me up. 
Mom doesn't do it alone anymore. I'm nearly 18, and though I'm small for an adult human woman, I'm not a little kid anymore. Mom's spine and shoulders and hips are half destroyed from the years and years of lifting and carrying me she's done up to this point. So a care team comes morning and night to get me in and out of bed. Your girls, Mom calls them. Jessica calls them those cunts. They don't come until seven, though, so I have a while to wait. I stare at the ceiling and examine the subtle undulations of the plaster, the minute cracks, the slight rumpling in the corner over there where the wall meets it. I know every millimeter of the parts of this house I frequent. Sometimes I ask my girls to leave me facing a wall just so I can examine that wall and know it better. My whole world is reduced to three or four rooms, three or four windows. Mom takes me out sometimes, but more and more in the daytimes, it's Jessica who is here. She doesn't need to be asked to face me to a wall. One full day and three afternoons a week, a trained nurse comes to be here with me so that Mom or Jessica can go out, a sitter. There was so much resistance to that. It took years. My social worker was hoping I'd just die before she had to try and locate funding for that. But I continued to live. (laughs) So eventually she was forced to provide respite cover, as she calls it. My girls last longer than the sitters. The sitters only seem to last about six weeks before they leave. Personally, I think it's because of Jessica, but none of them have ever said so. At least not to me. Most of them barely speak to me. Most of them think I'm an imbecile. The girls have a harder job, in my opinion. It's them who get me up, who stretch me into my shower seat and clean the shit and piss off me. I know, I know, it's grim. But that's reality for you. It's not all roses. It's my girls who hoist me, soaked and slippery, back onto the towels on my bed. It's my girls who carefully dry the creases of my ears and my labia, who dress the never-healing pressure sore on my sacrum and carefully put barrier cream between my buttocks to try to prevent the fragile, scarred skin there from breaking down again. It's my girls who stick a sanitary napkin inside my diaper for a bit of a boost when my period is on its first, heaviest day. I can't choose, but they can. They don't have to wash me like I have to be washed by them. I'm mostly grateful that they do, especially the nicer ones. I didn't used to be. I used to be incandescent with impotent rage at the eternal indignity of my existence. But after a few years of that, it dulled. And one day after a particularly difficult episode with Jessica, I realized that I actually love them. My girls. When they arrive, it's Emma and Francine. I like Emma most, I think, of all my girls. She's been with us so long, she remembers me speaking and doesn't treat me as if my mind is paralyzed, too. She speaks to me like I'm a regular person, even if I can only blink in response. Francine is fine. She speaks to me like I'm an infant and rolls her eyes at Emma's chit-chat, but she's thorough and she's gentle. Their arrival is preceded by a soft knocking on my open door. Morning, Els, Emma says as she comes in. Why do you always knock, Emma? Francine asks. You just saw the mom. She knows you're here. My mama raised me with manners, Emma retorts, but without passion. 
She's not interested in an argument. You sleep okay? She asks me. Your mom says you had a DSAT. I look at her, wondering if she can sense my smile and my paralyzed face. She grins as if she can. Troublemaker, Francine butts in, keen to be seen by Emma to be interacting too, but Emma rolls her eyes slightly at me. Nobody suffocates to make trouble, Francine, she says. You ready for your shower, honey? She asks me and waits until I reply. Yes, I blink. The sling is still underneath me from the night before. Emma pulls the cord on the wall heater to direct a blast of warmth onto me as she pulls my blankets back and begins to quickly undress me. Francine huffs a little and stalks off to the bathroom to put the shower on. As Emma reaches the pad, as she calls it, what I think of as my diapers, call a spade a spade after all, she pulls the thigh elastic out a little to check the contents. I already defecated waiting for them. We'll leave that on till we get there, she says, lifting the sling loops one at a time to attach them to the hoist. She holds the controls in one hand and steadies me with the other as the hoist lifts me from the mattress and carries me smoothly along its track into the ensuite wet room. As the blast of warm, steamy air hits my face, I close my eyes and avert my mind. I prefer to leave them to it while they're washing my genitals. It's a sitter day, and the sitter, Brenda, smells like cinnamon. It must be super powerful because it's so hard to smell with the trach. I can go days, weeks, without smelling anything. The cinnamon is so powerful, I wonder if my brain has conjured it and it's not real. Mom is still here. She asked Emma to blend my breakfast and is now feeding it as a bolus from a massive syringe into a giving set attached to my PEG, a valve in my side that goes directly into my stomach. We're in the sitting room, which is increasingly referred to as Elle's Day Room, because it's where I spend most days. There's no TV in here. Jessica says it will rot my brain. Breakfast is apparently scrambled egg, bacon, and avocado. It looks like watery green slop. Truly disgusting. But I can't taste it anyway through the bolus, so it makes no difference. My stomach growls gratefully as it begins to fill. Hunger had been gnawing by the time Mom had brought it in. An old sitter, Anne-Marie, used to give me tastes while she fed me, tiny smears on my tongue. Jessica soon put a stop to that. That was years ago, and it probably wouldn't be safe now. I've basically no swallow left, but I do miss tasting. The lemony zing of sherbet, the cozy yeastiness of buttered toast. The world is a very sanitized place without taste or smell. I don't know what happens between the giving set being taken to the kitchen and it being time to leave, but it's Jessica who comes back in. No eye-gazing this morning, she says to Brenda, eyeing me with mild irritation. None at all? Brenda asks, raising an eyebrow. She had a bad night. She's tired, Jessica says with hard finality. Mr. Chris says she should have it all the time. Brenda is a strange mixture of excessively timid around mom or Jessica and viciously furious in hushed conversations into her mobile phone during lulls in her work. I wish I knew more about her. Though she's been coming for four weeks, Jessica has almost never let me have the eye-gaze talker on while she's here. Chris isn't here caring for her, 
Jessica retorts. He's just the speech pathologist. No eye gaze. Are we clear? Brenda nods and Jessica flounces back out of the room. A minute later, the back door slams and a heartbeat after that, there's a grumbling purr of the Mercedes starting up. Mr. Chris might not do your care, Brenda says to me, but he knows his speaking business. Yes, I blink, but she's already turned away. She's been left a list of things to do while she's here, as I don't need complete, undivided care. Mom left it on my tray before she went to get my breakfast, and so I read it immediately. She's supposed to cook and blend my lunch, clean my bathroom and bedroom, check the dates on my night feed cartons, which are kind of high-calorie formula milk, and clean out and change the consumables on all my machines. Brenda looks at my sats and then turns me to face the window. No Aggies, then, she says, resigned. But look out. Cows made babies and look at the pretty yellow ones nodding there. She means the daffodils. She smooths her apron and plucks the list from the tray. My sister always says, I must be wicked when there's work, Brenda says. So here, I must be very wicked. There's no rest for the wicked. I have no way of saying. But she's gone anyway off into the kitchen to clatter pots around and make the chicken stew my mother has directed I should have for lunch. It's a beautiful day. I grudgingly admit that the garden looks much better now since Doug started caring for it. It used to be lawn and a few scrabbling trees. He's cut and filled beds with flowering plants of every color and for almost the whole calendar year installed a little pond with a small fountain and planted Japanese maples and rhododendrons. The lawn has never been greener or smoother. An azalea is in bloom just outside the window. As I watch dozens, maybe hundreds of bees visit its lavender blue flowers, filling their bellies with nectar and their saddlebags with pollen before bumbling, loaded down back to their hives with their bounty. I envy their industriousness. I think I was a busy person when I could move. I don't recall walking, but I can remember crawling and the years I could push my own chair along. I remember frustration, burning frustration, surely a sign I was in my desires an active sort of person. Jessica refers to my laziness at times, and I always wonder what it would be like if I was mobile. But I don't think Jessica would be here if I was. One of the sitters, Sarah, who was so young and pure and happy-looking, used to knit when she was here. I could watch her for hours watch her hands, needles flashing, yarn looping in wonder. I've never been able to do anything that intricate, even way back when. The clumsiness of immaturity shaded directly into the clumsiness of my paralysis without passing through any kind of precision. Perhaps it's for the best, I used to think as I watched Sarah's clever fingers. Perhaps it would have broken my heart to have an ability like that taken away. My back hurts. The pressure sore is aching. It's deep. The tissue viability nurse told mom that my sacral bone was visible at the bottom. But it's not infected, and for that, I suppose we must be grateful. Jessica had tilted me to the exact angle that aggravates it before she left. But without the eye gaze, there's nothing I can do about it. Sometimes my life is a meditation of pain. But the longer it gets, the less I feel inclined to relinquish it. You'd think it would be the other way around, that I'd want to die and be through with it. But somehow, my curiosity only gets more insistent. 
There's so much I want to know that I don't yet. Things I don't know if I'll ever know if I die. I try to tune out the throbbing ache of my sacrum. Focus on the activity in the azaleas. A little while later, when I'm almost dozing, hypnotized by the soporific industry of the bees, there's a huge crash in the kitchen, and Brenda lets out a long stream of curse words. I roll my eyes that way. I can't turn my head. I wait. I wish I could say I held my breath, but of course the vent goes on pushing the air into my lungs with serene regularity, oblivious to my emotions. Today is a full sitter day, and if Brenda becomes incapacitated, I will be without care until six. Would I die? Probably not. I try not to panic, strain to hear over the vent. After a few moments, small sounds begin again in the kitchen, and then a moment later, Brenda begins to sing. I can't sigh in relief, but I like to imagine a small increase in the air the vent sucks away on my next breath. Big crash, Brenda says when she comes back in. I dropped. She waves her hands around. Everything. Your mother likes to have every single item in the pantry go into every one of your meals, doesn't she? She asks. Yes, I blink. My digestion is a source of ongoing discussion, distress, and intervention. The doctors, who have been wrong so far anyway, predict that if I don't get a pneumonia from a passing virus or germ first, then I will develop gastroparesis, that is, the paralysis of my gut. If that were to happen, I would either have to go to TPN, total parietal nutrition, which is fed through an IV directly into the bloodstream, or, alternatively, starve to death. TPN isn't really going to be an option because, for one thing, it's not really regarded as a solution. It's supposed to be a temporary measure for those who have a gut that needs to rest and heal to begin working again. And also, I would need a central line fitting, a shunt straight into my heart with a port just under my skin, and I wouldn't be able to tolerate the surgery to have it fitted anymore. My recent weight loss is raising eyebrows, I know. I think when I die, almost everyone on the care team will just be relieved. I am already at the stage where I rarely go to appointments. Specialists come here, or more commonly, they have a video chat with mom. I can go entire months without even going outside. I'd be circling the drain if I wasn't immobile. Mom is more likely to do the evening if it's been a full sitter day. But today, for some reason, it's Jessica. She sails in at six, her wrists adorned with the ribbon and twisted paper handles of slick-looking department store bags, tissue paper fountaining from a few of the fanciest. Did you do the feeds? She asks Brenda sharply. Yes, I gave a two-syringe bolus each meal, and then after dinner a small drink, Brenda said. Jessica stiffens. Oh, dear, I think. Where was it written? Drink, Jessica asks, stabbing the list with an angry forefinger. I, I, I asked she wanted a drink. Brenda's voice is fast, quiet. She has sensed the tone and is gathering her things together, anxious to leave. You don't ask. Jessica's tone is straining, rising in an angry strangle. I, I asked, 
Brenda waves towards me. Well, I flushed the line. I asked, do you want more small drink? She blinked. Yes, I, I gave a small drink. 150 mLs only. I, it was the sterile water. Brenda looks perplexed and a little unsure. She knows Jessica is angry. She just can't work out why yet. Philip hang a sadness. I like Brenda. Now I'll never find out who her furious phone calls are with. Jessica's voice is low and dangerous now. The care plan is clear, she says, steely and full of rage. You do not deviate from it. She does not dictate it. She is spat with such venom I see Brenda's eyebrows shoot up. But, she falters, she blinked yes. Get out, Jessica says with finality. This is a dance I have watched her dance many times. I wonder if we'll have to change agencies again. I'll go, Brenda says. Don't come back, Jessica adds unnecessarily, I think, because Brenda is already beside me. She takes my right hand and lifts it, squeezing. It's thin and pale between hers, which feel doughy but strong and very warm. I'm sorry. Brenda is saying to me, leaning in barely above a whisper. I tried. I tell people, but they just say, no, all is well. So sorry. I'll pray. I'll pray for you. Get out! Jessica is screeching now, and Brenda goes. When the back door slams, Jessica comes closer to me, puts her enraged features close to mine. Well, I hope you're happy, she hisses. Then she closes the curtains and stomps out, turning the light off as she goes, leaving me alone in the dark. My girls come again at 8 p.m. to put me back to bed. The light is flipped back on only a few minutes before they walk in. Francine and Joanne do my evening cares, and I think Francine is still sore from the way Emma spoke to her that morning, because... She's a little rough with me, changing out the hoist sling. She flexes my legs so hard and so suddenly I feel the edge of the padded dressing on my sacrum peel a little. This jolts me from my avoidant fugue and our eyes meet for a moment. She holds my stare for a second then glances away guiltily. After that, she's more careful. But she never looks at my face again. I am washed, my teeth are cleaned, I am put into clean nightwear and hoisted back into my bed. My feed pump is connected to my peg, and the feed started. Francine smooths my blankets and pats me gently before she goes out. She turns at the door. See you tomorrow? She asks, hopeful. Yes, I blink. She smiles gratefully and turns away. If it's mom overnight, she often comes in when my girls have gone and sets up my tablet which I can work with the eye gaze so I can play games or surf. But it's still Jessica. Well, you won't be needing this for a start, she says, stopping my feed. She removes the giving set but leaves the bag sitting in the pump. She'll leave it to someone else to clean and reset it. She's a chaos agent. She dips the alert volumes on my SATS monitor and vent, and I'm just wondering what other torment or indignity she has dreamed up for me when she glances at her watch and straightens up. I'd love to stay and chat, she says sarcastically. But I've got company coming, so you'll need to entertain yourself tonight. 
She turns the light off and firmly closes the door as she goes, leaving me in the darkness once again. Soon, I hear Doug's deep laughter and relax a little. She won't be in here for hours. That it's still Jessica in the morning makes me nervous. It's mom less and less these days. I'd fallen asleep before Jessica came to bed, and I wake up to my girls' greetings as they come in, optimistic for a better morning. But then Emma queries my full pump bag, and Jessica smoothly lies. Oh, goodness, she says. I'd forgotten all about it. The alarm kept going off. I tried a new set, but it must be jamming up somewhere. I just gave a fresh bag by Bolus in the end. Could you pin that and reset it all? I don't know if Emma believes her. She looks at my face then. I just look back. It's a long time since I tried to tell anyone about Jessica. It's an afternoon sitter day, and the agency have assured Jessica they found someone who can follow care directions precisely. My stomach is a knot of pain by lunchtime. Jessica did not give the overnight by bolus, and she hasn't given me breakfast either. She's dressed for the gym, where I assume she's going when the new sitter arrives. Goodness, your nurses get younger every day, she exclaims when she's brought Marie into the house. Or maybe I'm just getting old. (laughs) Marie laughs gently. I'm 25, she says, but I do look younger. I still get ID'd buying painkillers sometimes. I assume you've read the care book? Jessica asks, nodding toward the thick-bound book on the low table, my care plan. I have. Marie is pulling her own copy out of her bag. I think it's all clear, and I'm only here three hours today, so everything should go okay. I have to say, Marie leans in conspiratorially, it's one of the best I've ever seen. Very thorough. This is the way to win here. Thank you. I do try to keep everything as clear and simple as possible. Jessica is grinning with pleasure at the compliment. She loves to impress nurses. Well... Marie waves towards the door. Get on your way. I'm here now. Jessica bustles out of the room, and I hear her dashing about in the kitchen, finding her keys and filling her water bottle. A second later, it's Mom who puts her head around the door. She smiles so wide at me, gives me a pang of longing and nostalgia. She's not had lunch yet, she says. I've left it out to defrost. Please warm it and dilute it and give it by bolus. Yes, I've read the care plan. Off you go. The door slams and there's momentary silence in the house. Just the whoosh sigh of the vent. I'm in a beam of sunlight sitting beside the window and I close my eyes and enjoy the peace and the warmth for a second. The relief when Jessica is out is enormous. Jessica wasn't always here. She only started to come when Dad left, more or less. I was 14 when he left. Well, Mom threw him out. At the time, I couldn't figure out what had happened. It was that one really awful year still when I lost my last finger and my voice. I was really struggling to communicate, and the adults around me spoke in codes and acted with subterfuge. But over the years, I gathered from snippets of overheard conversation that he and the knitting sitter, Sarah, had decided to have a baby together. Mom told my girls that he wasn't interested in visiting me. That he said it was too sad. I never saw Jessica back then, but I wonder if it was actually that she stopped him coming. 
Not long after that, I got ill. One of my girls brought in a cold, nothing too serious, a sniffle, but, but for me, pneumonia, and then a few secondary things. It was a rough month. A few days in ICU, then ten on a ward, then three or four awful weeks at home. I needed suction every 20 minutes, round the clock. But due to some clerical error, we weren't assigned overnight nursing for the first few weeks. So mom had to do it all herself. And I get it, I do. I remember the exhaustion of those weeks myself, the horses crowding around my bed and the witch tickling my feet that turned out to be hallucinations. I get it. But that was when Jessica first showed up, hanging over my face in the pre-dawn, stabbing the suction wand painfully into the bones of my trachea, hissing her rage at me. Eventually, nursed overnights were put in place, and I didn't see her again for a while, but she never completely went away. That was the end of so many things, that illness. The end of school. The end of dad. Maybe the beginning of the end of mom? That was about four years ago. For the last 18 months, Jessica's been here almost every day. Sometimes it's her for whole weeks at a time. An hour later, Maria's on the phone. Nobody has set up my eye gaze, although Jessica didn't forbid it either. If Marie has really read that care plan, she'd know she should turn it on. But people lie. People want to impress. So I sit in silence, turned half away from Marie, facing the window at an angle. Oh yeah, fine, Marie is saying. But it's not a surprise. I knew as soon as I saw the care plan that Brenda was off her rocker. This piques my interest. What? Maria's chewing a finger, casually flipping through a magazine as she talks to whoever it is. No, she was crying and everything, apparently. Came storming into the office in that state. She seemed really genuine, but I'm telling you, this woman is a saint. This one is way more work than most, and she's on top of every little thing. You know she's got this kid on a blended diet? She pauses, then laughs suddenly. <laughs> That's exactly what I said. She is half shouting. You can get the cartons delivered right to your house. But no, this woman is cooking everything from scratch, and you should see these recipes. She's not blending McDonald's over here. Every recipe she's put in the book is five, six vegetables. Literally, there's one she calls Easy Smoothie. It's got seven different fruits and veggies in it. She's quiet for a while then while the other person presumably joins in her wonder that I eat people food. I know. She flips the magazine shut and drops it on the coffee table. I'm going to do something. She needs someone to look after her a little, you know? A Marie special. I'll figure out a way to make her feel cared for, too. Anyway, I better go. She'll be back soon, and I have to make sure I've done absolutely everything. She sets my eye gaze up literally minutes before her time is almost up, and it's only just finishing starting up when I hear the back door slam. A voice calls out, Hey! And my soul shrivels a little. It's Doug. He's just walked up the empty driveway, so he knows nobody is here but me and the sitter. No Jess? I hear him asking loudly, and then the lower burbling chatter of himself and Marie introducing themselves. After a few minutes, I hear his voice coming closer. As well say hi while I'm here, he's saying. Shit. I look back at my screen and begin to laboriously scroll through the menus, folders, trying to get to the phrases I need. 
Doug is in the room. He's beside me now. I keep my eyes fixed on the screen, moving to the volume slider. If I glance away at all, it'll cost me precious seconds getting the software's attention again. Hello, Ellie Boo, he's saying as if he's talking to a toddler. His hand is on my thigh immediately. He's absolutely brazen nowadays. Is your day going okay, honey? He continues slowly, loudly, his hand creeping higher and higher, sliding around to the inside. Poop, the eye gaze shouts. Poop, bathroom break, please. I swivel my eyes to Doug's face and he snatches his hand away as Marie bustles in. Oh, let's take care of that quickly, she's saying. We don't want to leave any work to be done, do we? As she wheels me through the kitchen and my bedroom and into my ensuite bathroom, I hear the rumble of the car in the driveway and my heart unclenches a little. That was unpleasantly close. Marie is heaven sent, I quickly decide over the following days. She's exactly what I need. She's bubbly and helpful and thinks everyone here is a miracle worker. Well, everyone except me, I suppose. Jessica is still here almost all the time, but she's kinder, more like mom. She lets me keep my eye gaze, and in return, I am careful not to reveal myself to Marie. Marie speaks to me as if I was a four-year-old. She really hasn't read the care plan. My IQ, likes and dislikes and interests are all listed in there. Chris and I did that page together when I first got the eye gaze, as practice using it. We update it together every year. Do four-year-olds like Proust, Marie, or Kafka? Agatha Christie? Do small children enjoy Hitchcock? I don't see mom all week. Jessica is kinder when Maria's there, but her usual evil self when we're alone. She never hits me. She'd never leave marks on me. All of her torture is clustered around care. Boredom is one of her biggest weapons. No internet, no TV, no eye gaze. Often, no light. Just sat in a room facing a corner in the dark hour after hour, like sheeted furniture in an empty house. Urine left against my skin all day. My recline angled to sit my weight directly down on my pressure sore. A five-minute delay when I need suction. No hyperventilating before a cough session, so I feel like I might die before she gets my vent back on. And the feeding. The not feeding. I lose another 800 grams in weight. She never lets the night feeds run and doesn't feed me at all when it's just us. Most of my fluids are in my food, and when Emma flags that my urine is dark and malodorous, Jessica begrudgingly starts giving me more water through my peg. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe she does want me dead after all. On Wednesday, I wake groggy and nauseated. I've had one meal a day for four days, and today is supposed to be a no-sitter day. If it's Jessica today, then I won't get calories at all. Yesterday, when Emma changed the medicated patch behind my ear, which is supposed to reduce saliva, which I cannot contain or swallow, she commented to her colleague, a small woman called Maureen, that it was working a little too well. 
I'm still pretty dehydrated despite the fluids. My heart sinks when Emma wheels me into the sitting room and Jessica is there. I don't know how many more days I can do this. But then Jessica glances at her phone and grins, jumping to her feet. You look cheerful, Emma says, setting my break on. This new sitter Marie is an angel. I'm facing away from Jessica, but I can hear her smile in her voice. She's offered to come by for 90 minutes so I can hit the gym. Mm, Gives me such a boost. As Jessica leaves to get changed, Emma pulls my eye gaze down in front of me and switches it on. Might as well, she says, perhaps a little knowingly, in case the rest of them forget. Outside, I hear the mower and shudder inside. Doug is here, too. I have to be fast when Marie gets here. I've already found the folder I want, and I'm ready for her. Hidden, I make the eye gaze say as soon as Jessica is gone. What's hidden? She asks distractedly. She's tidying the room, plumping the cushions. Gatorade. I try to see her face, but she's too far to my right still. You can't have Gatorade, she laughs. Not me. I have to find these. They're not ready and waiting in the folder. Oh, me? No, I don't like the stuff. Jesus, this woman is stupid. Cold after gym. I keep trying. Favorite. Carer hid. Under sink. Put in fridge. Cold Gatorade. What? Marie comes to stand beside me now, looking at the screen, not at me. She scans the words again. Are you trying to say her favorite after-gym drink has been hidden? She asks me. Yes. Hope glows from a small spark to a tiny flame inside me. Under sink. Put in fridge. Cold after gym. And it was Emma who did this? She demands. Oh, Emma, I think I'm sorry, but I don't have time to argue. I silently blink. Yes. Then go back to the screen. Put in fridge. Nice treat. Gatorade. Cold. After. Gym. I say. She stalks away, muttering. I'm calling the care group about this. That's totally unacceptable, she calls over her shoulder. Then I hear her opening cupboards and then the refrigerator door open and close. What a lovely, kind girl, she says, simpering falsely as she comes back in. Shall we play a little game? We play online junior Scrabble. Me on the tablet, her on her phone, and I keep up my pretense of idiocy, spelling out goat, left, couch. She lets me win, which makes the whole endeavor somehow more depressing. Eventually, we hear the car in the drive. Toilet, please, we, change, I say then, and she falls for it and wheels me into the bathroom. By the time she's got my diaper off and my skin clean, we hear the door slam and she calls out. Hey, there's a Gatorade in the fridge for you. No way, really? Thank you, comes the reply, and the fridge door opens and closes. Marie is wheeling me back through the kitchen at the exact right moment, just in time to see her taking the first three big gulps, to see her features freeze, the fourth she splutters on. Marie is wittering away as we go. It was hidden. Ellie told me, I think you need to have a word with your care team manager because... She stops. Jessica drops the bottle, and as it hits the floor, green liquid fountains up and splashes across the refrigerator door. 
She puts both hands to her throat and slides slowly, almost gracefully, onto the floor. Then the door bangs, and Doug is among us. Jess! He is bellowing like a distressed calf. Jessica! What's wrong? What's... He pauses, taking in the scene, sniffs the air. Then he rushes to her kneeling, lifting her torso up onto his lap. Her head lolls against his chest on a limp neck, her eyes writhing in terror in their sockets. A choking noise is coming from her throat, soft, frantic burbling as her stomach roils and contracts, trying to expel the liquid, and her lungs take their own little sips of it on its way back up. Oh, oh, Jesus! He's still yelling. Jess, did you drink this? Jess, I told you not to touch that. It's not Gatorade, Jess. It's Paraquat. It's what? Marie sounds almost dreamy, too confused to even be alarmed yet. Paraquat! Doug screams. Call an ambulance. It's weed killer. She's drunk weed killer. They call an ambulance. They cry and argue and debate and beg Jessica to hang on while they wait for it. They ignore me which is useful, as it means nobody notices me going through folder after folder, deleting every word I said to Marie, deleting every folder I've made for this day. The hardest bit was keeping Chris from seeing it. This folder. In the end, I marked it menstruation and hoped. And I was right. He never looked in it. When it's gone, I go to deleting my recent phrases history, muting the volume and running silently through the dozen inane requests and remarks so that when the police come and scroll through my recent use log to check on Marie's story, they'll see she was lying. There's no evidence I said anything about Gatorade, that I interacted at all with her beyond asking for my diaper change and playing Scrabble. The history of my research on paraquat toxicity, conducted almost a year ago when Doug first put the bottle there, is long gone. Deleted on the day. And I know they can probably still find it if they really look. But they won't. Of course they won't. Of course the imbecile in the chair didn't orchestrate this. The paramedics rush in as I'm finishing. They check vitals, which are poor and sliding, try to get lines in, which proves impossible, then quickly decide to transfer immediately so a stomach pump can be done ASAP. I don't think it'll help. According to the internet, only a few teaspoons of Paraquat can kill, and she got three big gulps down before she realized. Not to mention however much she inhaled lying on her back in Doug's arms trying to vomit. It won't be immediate. She might have a few weeks, maybe a month, of a life more like mine. Then it'll be over. They strap her onto a spinal board to get her out of the house quickly. Throw a blanket over her and hoist her up between them. And it breaks my heart to say it, but at that moment... As she's being lifted aloft, her terrified eyes meet mine, and for just a second, 
in her own fear and powerlessness. She's not Jessica, but mom again. I knew, of course, that if I killed Jessica, I was killing mom too. My lovely mom, who cared for me so long and so hard, she ended up shattering into two people with the strain of it all. One loving and patient and kind. One callous and heartless and cruel. My mom, who just couldn't cope anymore. So she started leaving the evil version of herself in charge. There's probably a name for it in the DSM-4. I guess with Jessica gone, I'll have daily access to the internet to find out what it is. I'm sorry, Mom. I think as they maneuver her out the back door. But you left me no choice. I just want to live. was written by Beck Stranger and narrated by Kay Weaver. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com, and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media Production. Quack.